I'm Daniel. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Elevation. Uh, you get two doses of me. Uh, Phil has, uh, is still enjoying his time with family. Uh, so, uh, so for those of you that are just kind of sighing, like, oh, no, he's up again. Don't worry, Phil's going to be back next week. Uh, we are having our uh, church-wide picnic at the Grable's house, and I'll give you some more information about that at the end of the service. So, so yeah, so this week we are completely wrapping up our five, six-month series uh, called Healthy Living, Back to the Basics. And the intention of this entire series was that you would get the tools, you would get uh, the wisdom, the uh, guidance that God gives us in Scripture to live healthy lives. See, Jesus promised us that... Uh, that we would have uh, life and life abundantly through Him and through his, the power of His presence. And a lot of times we don't feel that way. A lot of times we'll take Him into our life and we don't feel like we're experiencing the abundant life. And so we wanted to emphasize that for this series that, that there is a desire, there's a desire in, your, in the Heavenly Father's heart that you would experience an amazing, fulfilling, significant life here on earth. And so... Uh, this whole Back to the Basics series has been about that. So if you're a first-time guest or if you're just joining us this Sunday, I would invite you to check out our website. We have all of the sermons online. Of course, it will take you a little bit of time because it's been five to six months. But uh, we, I definitely recommend you guys checking it out because we really pour out our hearts in trying to get you guys to, at least the tools and try to point you to the Scriptures that show how we can be healthy spiritually, how we can be healthy relationally, uh, with our relationships, how we can experience health financially, and how we can experience health emotionally. So last week was the first week of our kind of wrap-up. It's a two-week wrap-up. Really focused on just what it looks like as uh, individuals. Individually, what it would look like, the steps that you can do to start the process of becoming healthy. And it was simple principles, one principle. And it was don't just... Listen, don't just read the Word of God, that if you apply it to your life, that you'll experience a blessing in all that you do. And it's not just this blessing that you're going to be blessed, like around you, like you're not going to have like all of the money, all of the cars, the easy life, that the blessing will actually well up inside you. It will be a blessing that you uh, will experience whether things are good or things are bad. It's going to be a blessing of peace and contentment, which is invaluable. So I want to go ahead and start us with a word of prayer, asking God to just speak to us this morning as we close out this series. Heavenly Father, you've been so good to us. You've provided us with so many blessings. And so, Father, I just pray that this morning we would, we would see that there's intentionality, that the gifts that you give us have purpose that the plan that you have for us as individuals and also as a church is significant, is life-changing, and carries a promise of legacy. So, Father, I pray that you would cast a vision in our mind and our hearts this morning that we would see that you have a good and perfect plan for our lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all that you do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So one of the big things that I talked about last week um, was even just as we're going, as you're reading Scripture, uh, there's a trust factor, right? As you're reading the Word, you have to trust that God has good intentions, that God has a good 
plan for your life. As you're reading things, it may not, uh, and as you're listening to commands and the way that God has given you as far as guidance, it takes a trust factor to say yes, even when your life may not necessarily line up or your behavior may not line up with what God is saying and what God is promising us if we follow this, that we'll experience this blessing. So we have to trust him. And I, I thought of this after the fact. Um, is an imagery of when you're backing a car out, right? So like if you have, you're backing your car out and you have like trees or hedges or something on both sides, you can't see the road at all. A lot of times it's really helpful to have somebody step out of the car and go out to the street and kind of guide you on when to come out, right? And so me and my wife will do this. And if Lainey will come out, uh, I, uh, one, it, it, it behooves me to actually listen to what she says, right? Like, I'm not just going to gun it and just kind of like hope for the best. You know, I should, I should listen to the directions that she's giving me. And I can, I can listen to those directions because I can trust her. I can trust her for one main reason is that we've built a relationship on trust, is that I know that she loves me and that she cares for me and that she's not going to just have me go pull out in front of a dump truck just for fun, you know? So, at least I hope so. Uh, And so, I know we we have a foundation of trust in that relationship. And so, she has my best interest at heart. But also, what's great is that her vantage point, like she's able to see the road. So, her vision is so much greater than my vision is. And think about that when it comes to our Heavenly Father. We can trust Him because He does have our best interest at heart. Think about what He demonstrated, how He demonstrated His love by sending Jesus. So we have so many, He has so many evidences of His faithfulness so we can trust that His directions, what He's telling us to do, what He's calling us to do is actually good and for our benefit. But the second thing is true as well. He has vision. He's able to see our life from the beginning to the end. So he's able to see when things are coming and when things aren't. So not only can we trust him because we know he loves us, we can trust him because he sees. He sees what's around us. And so that's why I want us to encourage you all to be not only listeners, be not only readers of the word, but be doers because God is trustworthy. So this week, we're going to be uh, we're going to be looking at uh, as as we grow as individuals. So last week there was the individual call, you know, look in the mirror, assess where you are, uh, assess your behavior, see if you're heading in a direction that God has lined you up as far as guidance for your life, or are you heading in a different direction. This week I want to talk about what it looks like collectively. So us as individuals, when we become healthy, when God begins to use us, shape us, mold us, and he, get, he begins to work through some of the things and the issues that we have in our life, we as a church become healthy. The collective body becomes healthy. So like I said in the prayer this morning, I want to cast a vision. I want to cast a vision for not only us as individuals, but us as a church, that when we do follow God as individuals and as a church, and we trust him, that there's amazing things in store, that God can impact our community and our world in such an amazing way, ways that 
the next generation and the generation after that will see the ramifications. So I want to look at two attributes for a healthy church. Two things that if we are able to focus on will, will help us as a church to, to stay healthy and to stay in alignment with what God has intended for us from the start. So the first one, as you can see right now, the first attribute of a healthy church is a healthy church renounces the religious practice of vertical morality. Now you look at that and you're like, I don't know, have no clue what vertical morality is, and so I think we're good, right? I'm sure we're not doing that. <laughs> but vertical morality, if you could sum everything up, if you could sum up all of the brokenness of religion, it would be summed up in vertical morality. You see, vertical morality is probably the root reason why many of you have had bad experiences in church. I talked a little bit about it last week, but it is, it is a concept of putting our sole focus, our sole objective on a vertical relationship and making peace with God at the expense of other people. So there's three evidences of vertical morality. The first is that vertical morality elevates personal convenience over people. See, one of the most common ways that we do this, and I am as guilty as anybody else, is that I, I start creating loopholes to the commands of God. I want his favor. I want his blessings, but I'm having a hard time dealing with my behavior. I kind of want to keep this. I kind of want to have my cake and eat it too. And so you want to defend this behavior. And... Even in this principle, we also see that there is a, a heart behind it of trying to do maybe the minimum requirement to get by. What's the least amount of obedience that I can do to still be good with God and still have the things that I want to do? We see a really cool example of this in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. And a, a lawyer is coming up and asking Jesus, what he must do to inherit eternal life. So one day, an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now you can already see there's a flaw in that question. It's very self-centered. It's very focused. It's focused on, all right, how can I make peace with God? How can I get things right with God so that I can get eternal life? So Jesus replies, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you'll live. But the man wanted to justify his actions. The man was unwilling to let go of his behavior. The man was unwilling to change so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, I'm going like, to dig into the parable. It's a really famous parable right after this. But that question, who is my neighbor, is the loophole question. God is saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And there's, there's, you know, it's an all kind of thing. And this uh, lawyer is looking for the specific way that he can have the least amount of inconvenience 
to his life and still be good with God? I've asked myself that same question. How much do I need to serve? How much do I need to read to be good with God? How much do I need to give to still get God's blessing? It's okay if I lie here. God will understand. How far is too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend so that I'm still good with God? But when we do the minimum requirements, we end up hurting people in the process because we're less reluctant to, we're less reluctant to forgive, we're less likely to be generous, and so forth. See, any behavior that you're trying to justify by creating a loophole is probably in itself a selfish behavior. And in some form or process, it's hurting somebody else. See, we complicate it. We see all these things that Jesus says, and we complicate uh, following Jesus. We want peace with God, but often we're not willing to go to the length and to the measure of what God asks us to do. And so we kind of land somewhere in the middle. And really all we end up doing is hurting ourselves and hurting others. So that vertical morality elevates personal convenience over people. The second thing that vertical morality does is that vertical morality elevates rules over people. Vertical morality uses commands and rules as a scoreboard. We look at all the things that we're doing and we compare them to other people to see who's winning, who's supposed to actually get the blessings from God. See, when we elevate the rules over people, we end up, we end up hurting people in defense of those rules. Many of you, like I said, at some point in your life have been rejected by a Christian, rejected by the church because they want to defend a rule over loving you. And can I say that I'm so, so sorry. Our church, the church, the body of Christ, it is made up of broken people. And we don't always get it right. But it's easy to fall into that trap. That trap of, of that confidence in our ability to follow the rules. You see, the early church struggled with it just as much as we do today. Because the first followers of Jesus, they were all Jewish. And so they'd been taught since they were young that to follow God meant to follow the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And it had like 631 laws. So the conflict between the rules and loving people was coming to a head in the early church. And we see it a lot in the church of Galatia. So the church in Galatia is, was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish believers, but the Jewish believers were putting requirements, putting laws, putting uh, extra things that people needed to do to qualify to be followers of Jesus. And Paul, as he was addressing these believers in the book of Galatians, he knew the law backwards and forwards. And he was writing, them so, writing to them so they would reorient their application of Scripture. And this verse kind of sums it all up. So it's Galatians 5, 6. It says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision have any value. Okay, and so before I, let's just address that, what he's talking about there. Uh, obviously, it's, let's dr bring the application forward here. Uh, so this, uh, basically what circumcision was, was it was a outward expression of being Jewish. That in order to be a part of the Jewish community, and up until before Jesus, if you wanted to be connected to God, you had to be Jewish. It was, it was a single thing. It was only God made a covenant with one people and one people only, and that was the Jewish people. And so this was the outward expression or one of the outward expressions of this. 
but once Jesus came, Jesus came to fulfill all that. Jesus came so that we could all experience life and all experience the blessing of God. However, there was, there was a group of people that were wanting to add to, wanting to put more regulations, put more requirements on it. And really, I think it's only just to elevate their own status. They wanted to create a divide, a difference between, here's the confidence that I have. I was already, I'm Jewish, I'm born into Judaism. Jesus was a Jew, so I'm a little bit ahead of you. And so they were forcing uh, their brothers and sisters in Christ to fall under those things. Take it to where we are today. How often are we focusing on the exterior, focusing on maybe the behavior, the way people dress, the way people act, and we want them to become Christians before they come become Christians. We want them to come in the door all dressed up, have their everything in their life right, have everything going well, when really that's a, we're just focusing on trying to get them to follow and fit a mold. When Jesus is saying, hey, introduce them to me first, and then we'll work on the rest. But instead, we will try to alienate the people that don't look like us that don't act like us. So Paul finishes, he says, the only thing that counts, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that matters, the only thing that we can stand on as believers here in this community is faith expressed in love. So I'm saying this because I don't mean that we need to disregard the commands of Scripture, but we need to reorient the application of Scripture so that it loves people. Because if we're following what the commands of Scripture say and we're hurting people, we're misapplying Scripture. Think about it this way. As a parent, what is the fastest way to get on your good side? Treat and love your children. If someone loves your child, if someone treats them well, honors them, as a parent, you, you are excited. You love that person. So if you love Judah, even if you don't like me, even if you talk about me bad behind my back, I don't care. You love Judah, that's fine. I don't, wor- don't worry about me. But consequently, what's the fastest way to get on our bad side as parents? If you mistreat, if you, if you hurt our children, no matter how much you compliment me, no matter how much you give me gifts, no matter how much you say all these good things about me, that's going to fall short. Because you're mistreating my child. You're mistreating the ones that I love. Now think about God and his fierce love for all of his children. His fierce love for humanity. And when we mistreat other people, how can we say that we're good? We can do all these things. We can do all these things to try to earn God's favor. But we're not good with God. The third thing that vertical morality does is that it elevates us above people. See, after the lawyer asked Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? Jesus went on to tell one of the most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I would say that most of you know the story, but I'll just summarize it real quick. There was a Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was a really dangerous path. On the way, he gets robbed and beaten to near death. Two Jewish, uh, a, a Jewish priest and a, and a Levite who are, would be considered are like churchgoers or church clergy. 
So a pastor and a fervent churchgoer walked by, saw him, saw a fellow Jewish man, and were too busy or too focused that they didn't even stop to help. And then a Samaritan stopped, helped the man, went above and beyond to help him. So Samaritans and Jewish were enemies. Their hatred went back hundreds and hundreds of years. They were politically, culturally, and religiously opposed to each other. So imagine in our day, going above and beyond to help someone that is hurting or in need, that is fervently opposed to you politically. Someone that is a part of the homosexual community. Or maybe even someone that's Islamic. It's scandalous. What Jesus said then was scandalous. And it's scandalous right now. So whatever the greatest divide is between you and the other person, Jesus is telling you that no matter what that is, if you see someone in need, if you see one of the people that I died for and that I loved so much that I would die for, you need to help them. You see, when we get focused on on doing good with God, we tend to alienate. We alienate the people around us that are least like us or that oppose us. 1 John 2, 26, or sorry, 1 John 2, uh, 2 through 6 says, He Himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. It's great, right? But wait, not only our sins, the sins of all the world. That's everybody, right? And we can be sure that we know Him if we obey His commands. If anyone claims that they know God but does not obey His commands, which is love God, love others, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's Word truly show how completely they love God, Him. Uh, That is how we know that you are living in Him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. John is saying here that the, if you say that you are a follower of Jesus, if you say that you are living in God, then you should live as Jesus did. You see, the golden rule is to treat others the way that you want to be treated. And Jesus, he gave us a different rule. He gave us, I guess we could call it the platinum rule. And it is love others, treat others the way that I, Jesus, has tre- have treated you. You see, the night before Jesus died, he sat down with his disciples and he changed everything. In John 13, 34 through 35, he said, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Now, I just want to pause there because that's a big deal. Uh, Who gives commandments? God. He had not ascended into glory. He was not in the place where they saw him rise from the dead and he is laying down a new commandment. Even, you know, the Ten Commandments, even when Jesus was saying, hey, uh, what are the great, when that guy was asking what are the greatest commandments, love God, love others, that actually comes from the Old Testament. So Jesus is giving us a new commandment. This is like the Ten Commandments for us. This is the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. He said, you should love each other just as I have loved you, and you should, uh, you should love each other. For your love for one another uh, will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So when it says back in John 1, 2, uh, 2, uh, 2, 6, 
those that say they live in God should live as Jesus did. See, if we're not careful, we, the church, and us followers of Jesus, we will orient people to obey an invisible God rather than love visible people. We'll orient people to obey an invisible God rather than love invisible people. And they're not, so just so you know that I'm not like saying don't obey God, 1 John 4, 11 through 12 says, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And look at this. And his love is brought to full expression in us. The full expression of God is brought to the world when we love other people. When we treat others the way Jesus treated us no one has seen God but we love God by loving others Jesus and John are saying that our love for God is demonstrated and authenticated by our love for others you see as opposed to vertical morality horizontal morality is less complicated less loopholes love others the way Jesus loved you that's it but it's far, far, far more demanding. It's far more demanding to love others the way Jesus has loved you. A simple way to ask is to figure out what to do in the situation that you may be in is just ask a simple question. What does love require of me in this situation? What does love require of me with this coworker? What does love require of me with this person that's betrayed me, hurt me? What does love require of me? See, vertical morality as a church focuses inwardly, creates an us versus them mentality where we don't associate with others who don't look like us, act like us, or believe like us. That church is really known for what they oppose and what they're against and what they're for. Horizontal morality says you are loved and accepted in our church before you even believe. It's the type of love that stops and helps others, especially our enemies, like the Good Samaritan, even when it's inconvenient to us. It's a church that's known for its reckless love for others. It's a church that sacrifices, that gives, and it serves not to get, but they, because they already realize they've received so much through Jesus. So a healthy church is a church that renounces the religious practice of vertical morality. The second thing that you see in a healthy church is a healthy church does not see salvation as just an event, but a calling. You see, it's very evident in scriptures and it's very evident in Jesus' teaching that the church, all of us as believers, has been God's plan A from the start to reach the world and to take back what's been stolen by sin. Jesus even said this in John 16, 7. He said, it's better for me to leave so that the Holy Spirit will come and fill the people. Think about that. Think about the fact that Jesus was fully God, you know, eternal. He could have stayed on earth forever and taught and helped people follow Jesus. But he says, it's better that I leave so the Holy Spirit will come and fill my people. That we would be ambassadors of God's grace and his goodness. I've got two scriptures, and they're kind of long, and I'll walk through them with you, but I think they illustrate this brilliantly. 
The first is Ephesians 2, 4, 10, 4 through 10. And this is what Paul is, in the first three verses, has already talked about how we were dead in our sin and that we had no hope and, we were, and the God's anger was put against us. And then it says, but God, this is the transition, but God, who is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Now this is amazing. I want you guys to just picture this next part of the verse. So all of this, Paul is saying, so God, so this is kind of like here is a motivation behind a lot of what he's doing, is that so God could point to us in all future ages as examples of his incredible wealth, of his grace and kindness towards us. Paul here is speaking of a legacy. Paul's speaking of an impact that goes way beyond you, way beyond what's going on in your family, way beyond what's going on in your work, way beyond what's going on in your day-in, day-out pursuit. Paul is speaking of a legacy that future ages will see. And this is evident in scriptures. Think about this. You know, think about how long our country's been around. How many of you guys know who Abraham is? Abraham was on this earth 4,000 years ago or so. That is legacy. That is God pointing to us, the future age, and showing us examples of grace and goodness. And this is our legacy. This is our calling. And honestly, isn't this what we crave? Don't we desire something significant in our life? Don't we desire a piece of greatness? Don't we push and strive for some sort of recognition? We settle. We settle for likes on Facebook or we settle for notoriety on social media. But this is legacy. This is future ages seeing this. So it says right here in verse 8, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so that no one could boast. That's kind of the vertical morality. We can't take credit in our works or our morality. So go to the next one. For we are God's masterpiece. Think about this. He created us anew. This whole healthy living series about getting healthy spiritually, emotionally, relationally. He's creating us anew. He's changing us from the inside out. He's pouring out blessing into our life. Why? So we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. I want you guys to think about that the God that created the universe, the God that spoke everything into existence with his words, has a plan for every single one of you. Like, there is so much intentionality and purpose breathed into that phrase. There's so much in store for us. There's so much impact and significance that is in store for us. And you may ask yourself, or you may be saying in your mind, well, that's not me. I can't do that. And here's my list. Here's my reasons why. And can I just say that that is a lie from the enemy. 
that when Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy your destiny. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy your legacy, your greatness. He would love the next generation. He would love that your kids or your grandkids would see the brokenness in you and not see a greatness of God's grace. So my prayer is that God and these scriptures and the Holy Spirit would scream so much louder to your heart and to your life that that is not true. That as God is speaking, as he spoke the universe into existence, he is speaking truth into you right now. The next scripture, and I apologize, this, I know this is a lot, but I just love this stuff. This is awesome. So 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 20, and I'll kind of walk through this a little bit as well. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe we all, that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life, our old uh, way of doing things, the hurts, the things that we carry into this day, this person, this situation right now, what you've brought into this room that is nagging you, that you are struggling with is the old life. He died so that, uh, so that those who receive this new life would no longer live for themselves. This is the purpose behind it. There's more to this. But instead they would live for Christ who died and, has ra- and was raised for them. I love this part of the scripture. It says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We need to stop looking at other people for their benefit for us, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're famous or that you could just cast them aside, whether they're struggling with a sin, whether the sins they've committed, we need to stop evaluating people by these measures, by the comparisons that you know you've experienced in your own life and the comparisons that you've given to others. We need to stop evaluating people by their value, by that value of the what the world uh, would say is important. So at one time we used to, we used to, we thought of Christ merely from a human vo- point of view, how differently we know him now. So this means that anyone who belongs in Christ is a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. All of this, so all of that salvation, all of that new life, the old life is gone, the new life is gone, this whole back to the basics is all a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. He's given us a mission. He's given us something to do. Go to the next one. For God was in Christ. He was reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, no longer seeing people for their mistakes. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors God, this is crazy. God is making his appeal through us. God is using you as an instrument. God is using you. He's using you to make his appeal to your work, to your family, to your friends, to your school. He's using you. He's using you to appeal to them, to speak to them and to plead to them that says, come back to God. See, God has placed us all in our current situations and it was all intentional and I'm not saying here that you need to just like grab a bible and boomerang it at somebody's head or even like give them a bunch of tracks and not that there's anything wrong with tracks but Paul is saying here that he's given us a wonderful message of reconciliation 
How are people going to know about your story, your message of reconciliation if they don't know you? This is just built on relationship. This is just life-on-life chatting. This is just going up and asking your coworker a couple questions about how their day's going. You know, what's going on? You look down. You look down. Is there anything you need? What can I do to help? You see, getting us healthy and God giving us this abundant life is not so that we can have all the blessings. It's so much better than that. We get to be a part of a legacy. We get to be a part of God the Heavenly Father, the creator of all things, pointing to us. Think about that. God can point to you, Grant, ages from now and be like, you did it. That was him. That was me, my spirit, in him, and look what happened. Think about that. Think about that as an individual. That we would be examples of his grace and kindness because he did this all with the heroes of faith, just like Abraham. So a healthy church, as individuals, we renounce the religious behavior of vertical morality. We no longer go back to that old way of doing things. It's broken. You experienced it. It hurt you. You were judged because of it. It's the reason why people know why we're opposed, what we're opposed to than what we really care about. So it's not, a, it's not necessarily, you don't show your love to God by a, bunch, like a lot of quiet time and fasting and reading the Bible and the way you dress and the sins that you don't commit. You show your love for God by how you love and you treat others. Those things are all good, but your love is demonstrated and validated that way. A healthy church also realizes that salvation is just not an event. It's not, you know, that moment where you're saved is amazing. Like, praise God. That's death. That's like darkness to light. That's awesome stuff, but that's not just the event. That's not the end game. If it was, I mean, think about it rationally. As soon as we got saved, we would just go to heaven. If that was the goal. No, but God's plan was that he would redeem us, and then he would change us. And then we would be these walking billboards these instruments that say come back to God because man my life is different my life is good I've got peace I've got contentment I've got blessing welling up in me because God has been good and he set me free so if the band will come up as individuals and as a church can I say that we have been greatly blessed here and you are so generous and you do this so, so well. But if we just sit on this, if, if we don't care about the presence of God in our lives, if, if God just once a week is enough because we fear we, don't, we won't get enough unless we work hard enough or we won't experience enough unless we go do a bunch of experiences, or if we think that people's opinion of us is going to be the thing that really matters, then we may lose something of far greater value that we assumed would be there all along. We assumed God, God's presence and God's blessing and God's work through us and God's plan and this amazing legacy that he calls us to would be there all along. There's a 
parable about the talents. Many of you guys know this, and I don't have time to go in this. But God gives five people, two people, and one people gifts. The five and the two, or the guy that has five and the guy that has two, use it. They work it. They see what God's called them to do, and they actually apply it. And they get more. They get abundant life. And then there's the guy that has one, and he's fearful. He doesn't want to be inconvenienced. He doesn't want to work hard. He doesn't want to, what if he loses? What if he loses his friends? What if he loses his family? What if he loses his job? And he sits on it. And he's wicked. The master says he's wicked. And he loses it all. I want us to be a healthy church. I want us to be healthy individuals. God has placed us here to use us in Blanchester to impact future generations. That's why the sports and arts camp is so important. It's so important that we're pouring into the kids in the community. I want people to know Blanchester, Ohio because the presence of God is here and people were changed. Life is too short. It's too short to spend on things that could be here today and gone the next. Let's own these roles. Let's own this calling and be known for our love and our generosity and not known for what we are against. Let the church be a beacon to all those who are weary with life's burdens and disappointed in a place for rest where they can find a savior, where they can find hope that will never leave them or never fail them. Guys, let's be that church. Let's pray. Lord, why us? Why this? Why bless us? Why give us all of these things? You desire to use us in amazing, amazing ways. And so, Father, I just pray. I just pray that we won't be that servant with the one talent that just sits on it that is content with a status quo where we find ourselves pursuing other things that are going to leave us empty instead of pursuing the one that's going to satisfy us. So God, help us to be a church that changes this community, that changes the people that are here, that come in and their lives are changed because the overwhelming love that we have for them, not because they look like us and not because they act like us, but because you love them, so we love them. God, thank you for this. May your Holy Spirit come and fill us in this place, Lord. May it fill us so that we will go and leave and be the church that you want and desire us to be. And may we, God, may we walk in the newness of light that you've created us so that we can be examples, we can be billboards that say that God is good, that he can be trusted, and that in him there is life and life abundantly. Let's worship.